Just how much do we need to know about an industry before we shut it down? How much will people tolerate before enough is enough? Is it ethical to continue industries where we know for certain that a great deal of animal suffering is involved? And perhaps the toughest question, is it worth the money? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik and you're listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. This is part three of a three-part case study on the ethics of the live animal export industry in Australia. To find all three episodes, you can subscribe for free to Learning Capacity on your favourite podcast app and look for episodes 80, 81 and 82. My guest in the series is Dr Lynn Simpson, who's sailed 57 voyages on live animal export ships over 11 years, transporting live Australian sheep and cattle to the other side of the world for slaughtering and processing. In this episode, we talk about the industry here in Australia and some of the major players involved. It seems that even though there's plenty of research and evidence to suggest that significant change is needed for improved animal welfare, the industry continues largely unchanged. It immediately raises the question of viability. Is it worth the money? Or is the money worth the suffering? And if we can't fix it, should we simply stop it? And a warning, some listeners may find this story distressing. Let's turn to the industry now. It knows it's in trouble because you essentially lost your job by telling it like it is, which in fact you were asked to do. Can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances surrounding why you're not doing what you used to do as your day job? So it all started with me writing a submission that I was asked to write about recommendations I would have to change the um, legislation that we currently sail under which is ASIL, which I've mentioned before. So I wrote a recommendation, I wrote a report. Um, The majority of people wrote reports, there was a lot of them. Um, The majority of people wrote reports that were just several pages of of written word and and they had, you know, some of them said there's nothing to see here, everything's fine and others, you know, had similar issues to me. And um, the thing that made my report confronting to the industry is mine was instead of several pages of writing um, of just my experiences or my opinion, what I did was I cut and pasted um, our legislation with the legislation that we are an international signatory for, which is international animal welfare legislation called the OIE, which is a French acronym that I can't remember. And, um, and then with those pieces of legislation, I married them with an image of what that legislation actually represented because I'd found when I tried to explain to people what we did and what I confronted each day, even the exporters, because they don't sail with us. So um, I had to show them the actual visual of what I was complaining about. And when you read my submission, it's about reform. It's not ban the trade, get rid of it. It's about as I said before, we um, can export dogs and cats, we can export zoo animals, and we can export, you know, Melbourne Cup runners, for example, and they don't die. But we have standards with our livestock where, yeah, there is high mortality rates. Yeah. And um, and if we adjusted the legislation sufficiently, we could get those animals transported with um, low or no mortality rates. Um the interesting thing is that because my submission did not talk about banning the trade, people have jumped to assumptions themselves. They've, they've seen my images and have clearly thought that on their own bat, without me having to say anything, they've, 
Beth all decided that my submission was about banning the trade. And um, which I find really telling is that I didn't actually have to say ban the trade and people have jumped to the conclusions just from their own interpretations of those images. Interesting then, isn't it, that there's perhaps uh, a hint of a guilty conscience? Well, yeah, appalled um, is what most people have said. And and, and again, scientists, vets, we, we tend to be tremendously boring with our writing. And these pictures were the colour, literally and um, figuratively, that people had been looking for to... Um, to challenge the the status quo of what our legislation was. So so interestingly, I didn't have to do anything more. It's actually quite a boring submission in my view because it's not emotive, you know, I'm not using emotional language, um, I'm not lobbying for one thing or the other. I'm just saying if we were to modify this, if we were to modify that, um, we'd get a better animal welfare and health outcome. And um, I think the crux of the problem with it is if we were to actually make the modifications that would reach the animal welfare, desirable animal welfare outcome, um, it would prove that the trade is non-commercially economically viable. Yeah, so clearly that, that comment there combined with the fact that they've reacted very quickly to something that you don't think should signal the necessary and abrupt end to what they were doing, but just an improvement of standards and reform clearly indicates though that someone feels very, very bad about what they know to be the truth. Yeah. So do you think the Australian Live Exporters Council, or ALEC, just wants this whole thing to go away? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I've got no doubt about that. I mean, is it is it as simple as that? As in, no, we actually can't fight this out in the courts. We can't, we can't argue this in the media. We know that we're on the back foot here. We know that there's really no way of improving the standards to the point where they, where they should be improved. Let's just hope this whole thing goes away. They know that they can change the standards and the research and development has been done by very credible scientists for decades um, showing what standards should be improved and to what level, so stocking density numbers, um, voyage duration, all that kind of stuff, the type of animals that we carry, they have vehemently resisted adopting any of that scientific knowledge, which they have funded, mind you. So it's not like, you know, an, a wacko animal welfare extremist group has gone, oh, we've done a survey and it says this. So, and, of course, you know, a commercial industry would go, go away. This is research that they've done themselves with people they've chosen to be their researchers and then they have chosen to vehemently resist embracing or adopting any of that any of those recommendations which just screams to me that it can't be financially viable for them to do this trade in a good manner i was going to say that clearly the motivation there is a financial one because they're thinking the only way that we can do this is to pack those ships as full as possible absolutely and there's an economy of scale there where that allows them to lose that two percent of animals too and still be financially viable has anyone run the numbers on whether it's actually cheaper to process the animals here in Australia and ship them as chilled or frozen meat? That gets us into a different territory. I don't know the exact numbers because um, I've never been involved with the price of shipping. Um, so that's something that was always kept close to people's chests who were in the know and, and we weren't in the know in that, in that situation. Um, what I find really interesting is 
since since I've actually been on land, and this is ironic, since I've been on land, I've found out more about shipping because when you're on the ship, you're just getting on with your job and we're obviously pretty busy on those boats. We've got one vet and a handful of stockmen for a huge amount of um, animals. And now that I've been on land and I've been part of, you know, researching for the review program and um, and obviously now doing more research on my own back because I'm obviously in a predicament where, um, I need to work out why my career has been decimated and I'm finding out more and more, I'm finding more and more research and development and I'm reading it and it's saying we need to make changes. There's changes that have been tabled in Parliament since 1985 that are saying the same, that are recommending the same recommendations that I put in my submission in 2012 and none of those have been adopted to date. And industry keeps saying, we need more time. We need to do more research and development. Well, that's bollocks. We have all the research and development. They're not acting on it. And now you're in the situation where you've effectively been removed from your job. On the on the 7.30 program uh, a short while ago, Simon Crean, who's the uh, current chairman of ALEC, is interviewed. And he, he makes or he made what an, a, appears to be a bit of a backflip and apologised to you on behalf of ALEC uh, after you've been removed from your job, of course. And then seems to want to invite you back to participate in what he said was a workshop to look at ways of improving the industry. Now, you've just told me about a report that's been in existence for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. Presumably, he knows about that report, one, one would imagine. And even if he didn't, he would know that he's still got a problem on his hands. Now, he wants, now he's apologized and wants to ask you back for more advice. Why do I get, why do I get the feeling that that's just a smokescreen? Um, I've been describing it as a hollow olive branch. Um, well, A, why would I want to do a I, – I would like to do any work I can to um, to improve things for the animals while this while this trade continues because I'm still very driven by, by doing that. Um, however, <laughs> the irony was I got into this pickle by being part of a workshop. So I lost my career by being part of a workshop that they didn't want me to be part of. That's what the submission that I submitted to, yeah, I submitted it to a workshop that was to improve standards on the ships. So that didn't work the first time. Now, I'm not necessarily the quickest learner, but I'm pretty sure. I mean, I've got nothing left to lose now. So I'm not racing into um, to a workshop that I think is just going to be another waste of time. The other irony there is um, everyone keeps coming up to me going, oh, you must feel so vindicated now because, you know, you've been apologised to and that's fantastic. Uh, fact of the matter is... ALIC, the Australian Live Export Council, Simon Crean, Alison Penfold, whoever is the representative at the time, not one of them has ever contacted me. So they apologised to a journalist and a cameraman. I would imagine that you probably wouldn't feel terribly vindicated. I think you'd probably be still feeling rather fired, (laughs) (laughs) if I can put it that way. Yeah, yeah, no, that's settling in quite nicely, the fired feeling. Um, Yeah, it's it's, just sort of... They've just made a mockery of themselves, really, because they've basically asked me to come back to do the thing that they didn't want me to do. Let's just pretend then that the workshop actually takes place and that you're part of a review process again. Yep. You've, you've made connections between the live animal export trade and the slave trade. Given yep. how strong the reaction from the industry has been and the fact that someone's thought of a workshop that could happen. Let's just put all of those things into the pot. 
what could a workshop possibly recommend? I mean, is it actually possible that we would be able to implement new standards to make the live animal export industry viable and with, with what we'd have to consider, reconsider as acceptable levels of cruelty and mortality? Is, is it actually possible in your experience? We could make recommendations and implement them that would improve. You would still get mortality rates and the majority of Australians, if they were to travel on those ships, would probably still find it appalling. Um, I think if I was to go to a workshop with them, I would turn up with all the research and development that's already been done and request why it hasn't been acted on. And until that was acted on, I don't think any other changes or any other research should be done. Um, the two key things that we could change immediately would you would have um, every vet on the ship would be independent. So currently the vets that sail, and they don't have you don't have to have vets on every voyage. It's at the Department of Agriculture's discretion. And it used to be any voyage over 10 days um, or a maiden voyage of a vessel after, or after a disaster or something. Um, now it's only any voyage that goes through or to the Middle East. Again, it's at the department's discretion, which means they're starting to actually um, loosen their standards. Um, the problem is you have to be you have to have jumped through a handful of accreditation um, hoops to be able to sail on these ships as a vet. So you can't just be a vet. They can't just pluck anybody out of a clinic and, and throw you on a ship. You've had to have done all these. They're quite ambiguous and and waffly, stupid online things that the government has developed and they're all useless for being on board. They're a complete waste of time but it makes a bit of money for them, I guess, And because um, we have to pay yearly fees. And um, so we sail on these ships and we're government accredited but we're freelance agents and the exporter has to pay for us out of their pocket but the government insists that we're there so you're reporting back to the government, but the government's making the exporter pay your wages. So it puts you in a terrible position where you come on board and the exporters, and they say it mockingly to you as a joke, but you know they mean it. And they say, oh, the spy's arrived. So they see us yeah. as a government spy. And then interestingly, um, I had a pretty good track record of um, mortalities. Out of those 57 voyages, I only ever had one voyage that um, hit what we call a recordable or reportable mortality rate, which is, you know, I did a stupid amount of voyages, like a really high number. There's very few, vo there's very few vets um, at the time that I stopped that had met that number. And, um, and so I had a great track record. And so I started to get vilified and accused by um, people from the Department of Agriculture themselves, mostly regional, that I was fudging numbers. So they thought that I was working for the exporter. The exporters thought I was working for the government. The exporter has to pay me. The government insists that I'm there. The exporter gets to choose who they have. And it means that when you do a report, you have to be very careful with what you write because you may never get another job again if you say this ship's ordinary or whatever, um, but you want to do the right thing. Sounds to me like it doesn't matter which way you turn it around, your position's untenable really. It really is difficult and it, it forces your hand to go behind people's back and sort of covertly report um, to the likes of the Department of Agriculture, which, which I did try um, for years. I took mini submissions like the one that's got me into this situation to them and they were all summarily ignored. Um, Interesting, what I found is I got introduced to 
AMSA, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, who are the co-regulator of exports. So um, Department of Agriculture regulate the animal welfare and health side and the veterinary side, and the um, Australian Maritime Safety Authority regulate the, they're essentially like a ship registration um, domestic organisation, and they regulate whether the ship is safe and designed properly enough and um, to the quality that they are happy to be loading live Australian animals onto. And um, and what I found out, ironically, and I've got a strong physics background, um, and so I, you know, I've got quite a good idea of um, sort of engineering concepts and chemistry and that kind of thing. And so I would probably make a really ordinary vet now if you took me into a general practice or, you know, rural practice or whatever. But the combination of the physics and the chemistry and the veterinary stuff and the seafaring, I can now go and talk to AMSA. And I have been doing that since 2003. And I've actually had more animal welfare improvements, long-lasting improvements and um, soon-to-be changes in legislation influenced by AMSA than I have through the Department of Agriculture. More from my discussion with Dr. Simpson coming up. To catch all three episodes, you can subscribe to Learning Capacity on your favourite podcast app or simply search for Learning Capacity on iTunes. And remember, we're always keen to hear your comments and feedback, particularly on controversial issues like this one. Send your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. So fast forwarding then, is is it actually possible that this industry can continue? I mean, if we had to say, if we had to reduce it to a yes or no, what's what's your gut feeling on that? Technically it can, but it won't be economically viable. Okay, so in order to make it, in order to keep it going, we have to run it at a loss. At a loss. And going back to the question I didn't answer before about the, um, didn't answer properly, about the cost of shipping, um, meat versus live animals, one of the interesting things I found out by being now on land and having access to more information, we don't have the internet at sea, um, is that there's actually a large grey meat market trade, which I had no idea existed. Like you hear about the black market, about you know illegal things being sold, but there's a grey market. And what I'm being told from sources that I think are reliable are um, about 95% of animals, for example, that we send to Kuwait, um, like sheep generally, are being slaughtered there in big slaughterhouses. So, you know, not the, the single Islamic, you know, requirement mm. household job. They're being done on a big mass scale. They're being slaughtered in, um, in slaughterhouses in Kuwait and then they're being put into boxes as children frozen meat and they're being on, on exported to other countries as Australian meat. So they've done the horrible journey. They've been killed potentially poorly, and then they become the product that we actually wanted to be leaving from Australia. For the average Australian listening to this who might have been thinking, well, we have to export the animals live to those countries because they've got their own beliefs as to how they need to handle the animal and we need to respect that, which on one level is okay, uh, that's actually largely not the case. So, yeah, it totally flies in the face of that. And um, and there's – I know Q8 does that. I've been told that um, uh, Egypt does that as well with our cattle and um, 
insult to injury there, our cattle not only have to do a horrible voyage, they then get killed in potentially awful ways and get treated poorly. Um, they then got, get on exported as boxed Australian beef again to the, economic, uh, to the European Union. And then when they arrive in the European Union as Australian meat, that competes with the quota that Australian producers or processors in Australia can actually send as boxed meat from Australia. That's an incredible story. Now, presumably, uh, the the ongoings of this story are are still happening, and uh, I suspect there's probably quite a lot that you can't talk about. However, uh, can we know that this is being investigated? Um, it is being investigated, but not by um, our regulatory authorities. So, is there any hope for improvement? Gosh, it doesn't seem to have been so far. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen anything. Um, again, it's one, it's, it's one of those things, again, where you, where, you, know, you, you respond with a, uh, a laugh, and I guess it's an outpouring of emotion, but it's really not funny. But, I mean, there's, in one sense, there's, there's no other way that you can process it, really. Oh, it's just frustration. Um, you know, we've tried so hard. There's been so much work, so much money put into um, to making or to coming up with viable um, improvement options for this trade, and none of them have been adopted. Um, what I find... Uh, staggering is that every time you sell a cow or a sheep in Australia, you pay a, um, a levy, a fee, and um, and that money goes to Meat and Livestock Australia is my understanding. And a percentage of that, and I presume it's the animals being sold to live export, um, that levy money gets used for research and development to improve those trades. So if I were a farmer who was actually producing those animals and having to pay that levy every time I sold animals, I'd be expecting some return. And they're, not, they're not getting it. And, um, and I suspect a lot of farmers are very busy farming. And, um, you know, I, I live in a farming community and, you know, they sort of say to me, wow, we didn't know any of this. And, you know, I'm in their ears all the time, of course, driving them mad. But... Um, but they're like, wow, and they, the, the ones that take the time to listen and look at what I've got to show them, they just say, we don't want to play in this game. We just want to make sure that our animals aren't being sent in these systems. Um, the few farmers around here who have dabbled with live export have all said that um, at the end of the day, financially, the original price of the animal looks like a win, but usually when they play, they, they find themselves to be either stuffed around or they actually come out at a loss. So that's quite interesting. Um, but I think the farmers themselves need to start putting pressure on their industry bodies and asking, why is this trade continuing? Why is it continually, at being such a small percentage of the export trade, meat versus live, why is it why is it such a thorn in our side? Why are we allowing it to tarnish the name of Australia and Australian farmers? And when I saw a bloody business, uh, I had no idea until watching that TV show, that was the Four Corners expose in 2011, I had no idea until then um, what the slaughter um, standards were that I was delivering into. So that was Southeast Asia, which is a market I didn't work in because it was short haul. They don't do vets to short haul. Um, but it was found out subsequently that the Middle East, of course, was, was not doing well either. So I felt tremendously duped, ripped off, lied to, betrayed by the entire industry 
and um, and anybody who had received a report saying, you know, this is going on and there had been reports received and the government had received them and no action had been taken. And um, and I felt completely just ripped off and, um, and just awful about my complicity to the trade because obviously I was delivering animals into it. Mm. Had I known that that was what was waiting for them, I wouldn't have put as much time or effort into healing them and trying to make them better from injuries and sickness and whatnot. I would have just shot them all in the head. Well, which is an awful statement. It's uh, well. I'd just like to remind our listeners that um, once again, this hasn't been a, a discussion about becoming a vegetarian or being anti-meat industry at all. Uh, however, it is about very much about uh, exposing things that are, are not right. Um, that do have a, a very large ethical question about them. And, uh, well, it's, it's good that you uh, are able to provide us with this information, but, uh, uh, well, obviously very unfortunate that you've had to go through what you've been through. I guess the point I'm trying to make there is um, the farmers felt equally as ripped off and lied to, and we've got um, a large percentage of the farmers that do provide to this trade are sort of backed into a corner where they're in remote areas of Australia and there's no access to domestic processing. So they're kind of, they've got no choice but to sell to this trade. Mm. And unless we can get some domestic boosting to the processing um, facilities and actual infrastructure, especially in the north of Australia, these farmers are totally reliant on turning their animals off the property and onto into a live export system. And... Um, and I think a lot of them just felt completely flawed and duped, as I did. And they, they're just torn. And some of them, you know, it's been really interesting. I've had very little negative feedback for the um, the information I've put out. Uh, the negative stuff I have received has just been vehemently bitter. And I suspect that the people who are um, perpetuating that feedback are trapped with export as one of their only ways to trade and continue in their life. Yeah. And and I feel really terrible for them because I felt awful as a vet that was being complicit. If I felt that I had um, bred and grown and grazed and owned, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of animals and sold them into that system, you know, the guilt factor must just be tremendous for some of them. Some of them may not give a damn, but my experience is most farmers do really care about their animals or they wouldn't be out Mm. there in the bad weather, the hot weather, the rainy weather, doing what they do. So I think there's a little bit of an ostrich syndrome. Some of them don't want to know too much about it because they suspect it is awful the more they hear but they don't have a way out. They need to pressure their their industry bodies, and they're the only ones that can do it because, you know, I'm not a, pro, a, a primary producer, so I can certainly provide information, but um, it's the primary producers that actually have to speak up and start saying, we want a way that we can sell our animals to a sale yard, not to live export, but sell them to a sale yard and know that they're not going to end up on a ship. I guess we can only work further towards... Uh improvement across all areas. Lynn, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you very much, Colin. That concludes this three-part series on the ethics of the live animal export industry in Australia. That certainly doesn't mean, though, that that's the end of the discussion. We encourage listeners who want to take further action to share the discussions on this podcast to broaden awareness, but also to engage with animal welfare groups around the country as you feel appropriate. 
Our special thanks to Dr. Lynn Simpson for sharing her story. To find out more about LearnFast and science-based language learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you.